Good morning, church. Hope everybody's doing well. Had a good weekend. Typical Georgia. 87 degrees yesterday, 32 this morning. No big change. Doesn't affect us at all, does it? My name is Joey. I serve as one of the pastors here at Connection. It's great to be with you this morning. Look forward to sharing with you from the book of Colossians. Um, kind of an in-between weekend on athletics, I guess. At least Georgia didn't lose yesterday since they didn't play. And um, that's good. Southern did great. Go Eagles because that's where we live. And uh, so we, they did a really good job. Thank you all for driving back. From New Mexico last night and being here this morning, as you traveled, um, I think that's where they were. So that's, I think that's just above Atlanta. Um, if you uh, glad you glad you're here, um, high schools didn't fare too well this weekend. I believe Blue Devils didn't lose. They were kind of with Georgia. They didn't play either. So that was good. That's good for them. We get all that out of the way. So I hope everybody had a good weekend. Um, I think there was something going out there on Fair Road this weekend. I saw a couple of lights. A couple of times during the week, um, first time in uh, a long, long time that uh, I didn't go to the fair. <laughs> yes, praise God from all blessings flow. I did not go to the fair, and um, I do like going out there and and uh, consuming other people's smoke and and uh, eating very healthy food, but just missed out on it this year. So. Hope you went. Uh, hope you helped the Kwanians uh, raise money. So that's good, right? So turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. Another book, another letter that Paul has written um, to the people of Colossa. And they have, um, in his typical way of doing things, he encourages and he hammers and he encourages again. Uh, just a great leader, Paul was, in the way he kind of did those bookends, and it's good for us as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, um, we will have it up on the screen for you. But we're going to begin right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, 
and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the morning. We're thankful for this day that we can gather. We're thankful for cool air, God, to wake up and, and have a crisp morning and, and sense that the season is changing. We thank you for that. God, we pray today as we break open your word, Lord, that it speaks to us. We thank you for the writings of Paul. We thank you for his honesty. And we thank you most of all, God, how appropriate his words from so long ago impact us today, that your word is living and breathing. And God, it still speaks to us. So allow it to speak to us today. God, get me out of the way. Help my words be clear today as we listen and break open your word. We thank you, God, in your son's name we pray. Amen. So have you ever heard of the cliche, um, off with the old and on with the new? We kind of hear that. We, we say it sometimes. We use it in different figures of speech. But off with the old and on with the new. So I did a little Google searching, trying to figure out where does this come from. I like, I like to just think of quotes sometimes and just kind of Google it, go into some dictionary and see where did this actually come from. And there's no really good explanation of where off of the old and on with the new came from. One of the uh, places that I saw it very consistently had to do with relationships. And that had to do with, so you need to be completely over a relationship before you start a new one, right? Sounds like common sense. And I know none of, none of us have ever probably gone into another relationship with baggage, you know, like that. But um, sometimes that happens. Actually, it's how I pay the bills in my private practice. A lot of people do that and need some help working through, you know, relationships. And so I'm able to help with that. But, but that's kind of where I saw that as a consistency of where that phrase came from. But I think it's good advice, you know, off of the old, on with the new. I've heard the phrase used to describe everything from, like, fashion design and decorating schemes to political climates and even sports trades. Off with the old, on with the new. But I think my favorite explanation of this cliche, I apologize ahead of time for this definition from the Urban Dictionary, which says, off with the old, on with the new is refers to eating while sitting on the toilet. Just quoting here. Didn't make that up. I think it's pretty funny. But I, it didn't come from me. So it's just kind of the way it is. So now that you have that picture in your mind, let's be spiritual. Um, so off of the old, on with the new. Back in uh, 2005, thereabouts, um, my wife and I, Lisa, we decided that we were going to become campers. Um, kind of dabbled in a little bit. You don't, you're not born a camper. You kind of become a camper. Kind of like getting saved. You, you put off the old on with the new type of thing, and you become a camper because it's a, it's a mentality that you have to have when you camp because the, the people in campgrounds are, are different from regular folk. Um, they do different things. So we had to kind of tap into this community and understand what this is all about. So we end up getting a camper, but in order to get a camper, you have something to pull it with. So in 2005, I find this 2000 Ford F-250. Any of you know me that know I was still driving that up until just like two weeks ago. But um, 
you know, I bought it with very low mileage, 150,000 miles, you know, on a diesel. Had the old 7.3 diesel. Oh, man, it was, it was awesome. It was a good truck. That's what I pulled my camper with. So I'm not one to buy vehicles a lot. I've, I've had, you know, just a, a few vehicles since I could drive and had to buy my own stuff. So I drove that. And, and then just a, a couple years ago, I guess, we decided to get out of the camping business because what I realized is I'd get ready to go camping, have everything loaded, and I was the only one in the truck. So it was not a family event anymore. Um, kids got older. Nobody really wanted to go. It was just, you know, ball and dance and, and everybody else's priorities, which was fine. So we are kind of moving away from that ordeal. So it was, it was kind of time to, to sell stuff while it was still worth something. So we sell the camper. That took a little while. So we couldn't sell the truck until we sold the camper because we had to move it around. So then I, I sell the truck. And it was probably time, it was still low mileage, had 337,000 miles on it at this point. And people were like, you're just breaking it in, you know, as diesel people. You're just breaking it in, that thing can go for a million miles. Well, I broke it in all right, but I, I, I did pretty well on it, got what I wanted. So it was time to get something else. And me, you know, my dad died in May, and I was driving his truck while he was really, really sick, and while I was trying to sell my truck, so I had his, so I had something to, to drive, so I wasn't in a real hurry to buy something, other than his was a diesel too, and I was, I was a little tired of that price tag and filling it up. So I keep looking around, and I finally find what I'm looking for. Another, another vehicle, low mileage, only 126,000 miles. You, if you do the math, that's 25,000 less than the other one. So oh, that's new to me. That's pretty new. Find it in Brunswick of all places, and I, I go down there and I'm going to Orlando to teach a class, and I was going on a Sunday, so I talked to the dealer. I said, is there any way you could leave me the keys to this? And I talked to a couple of friends. They worked it out. I get down there, so nobody's at the dealership. I find the key, and I went through this thing. I was under it, in it, up on top of it, drove it, and it was, it was what I was looking for. I had a couple of issues that, that needed to be dealt with, so I'm teaching the class. I call the dealer back. And uh, we talk a little bit, and, and I uh, said, you know, it's got this warning light on there, a little wee, shimmy in the wheel. Can you check on that? And he said, yes. So it comes about Tuesday, and I said, I really like it. Talk to him about price, you know, dealing with car dealers. If any of y'all are in here, I don't, I don't like y'all. But anyway, he uh, said, is that best you can do? He said, I can come off probably about $400. I was already happy with the price, but he came off of it. And um I said, and he goes, I also need to, I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to add a one-year, 12-month warranty to it since we worked on the motor. I was all right, since they, you know, it has a sensor and all. I said, it's fine with me. So I, I go down, I, I buy the car on the phone, which I've never done before, come back on Friday, drive through there, have a rental car, get that turned in, go get this vehicle. Start signing the paperwork, and it comes up to, as there's no warranty, says sign this. So I said, well, the the manager said that there was going to be a 12-month warranty on it. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 we put that on there since he changed the whole motor out for you. I was like, excuse me? He said, uh, he goes, oh, yeah, you know that's got a new motor in it. I said, no, I was not aware that it has a new motor in it. He said, yeah, when the guy came in and traded it, it was blown up, and he couldn't afford to change the motor out, so he just traded it, so we put a new motor in it. He said, it actually has 20 miles on it, and you put 15 on it in your test drive. And I was like, Booyah, I tricked y'all. See, when I go to the dealership and I leave, I usually feel like something internally has been ripped from my guts. But I pulled one over on them, right? They changed that motor and 
they didn't know that they changed that motor. I got a, almost a brand new truck with 126,000 miles on it, but only 20 miles on the motor. I felt good about myself. So it was off with the old and on with the kind of new for me, right? At least a new motor. I felt pretty good about it. But regardless of the context that this phrase is used in, we know that it has to do with, with letting old things go or that are worn out and then taking on something new or something novel. So on with the new and the old cannot coexist spiritually. They cannot remain at the same time. So the second half of the book of Colossians is really about taking off the old, putting on the new. The first two chapters focus on doctrine, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the second two chapters focus on if we pursue Jesus, if we pursue Jesus, then what our lives will look like. So Colossians chapter 3 shows how our relationship with Christ leads to a new life, a new life, off with the old life, on with the new life. The whole section is grounded in verse 1, though. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. The Colossians had been spiritually dead because of their sins. And, but Jesus gave them this, this new spiritual life through his death and resurrection, as he's done for us. Their new identity in Christ would affect their character and their thinking. So verse 1 through 4 provide the motivation for the new life, and 5 through 17 show the contrast of the old life and the new life. So off with the old, on with the new, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at those. Chapter, I mean, verse 1 says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Since then you've been raised with Christ. And this is truly the essence of what it means to be a true believer, alive from the dead, going from death to life. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, this statement distinguishes this whole Christianity thing from any religious system at all. You see, it's not a human system linked linked to earthly sanctuaries or rituals and rites. It has no essential center of authority in the world. The center is Christ. The center is Christ. The true believer is simply a person who's being granted a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand. We're to vigorously pursue and develop a relationship by seeking the things above. So it's about a relationship. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. I have to do this, I can't do this. I do this, I can't do this. Even though Paul presents some of those things in here, it's about the pursuit of Christ and have a relationship with him. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. Now the things above are, are contrasted with earthly things. Or things below, he says. Now, what Paul means by this is that Christians are supposed to focus on spiritual things instead of physical things and eternal things instead of temporal things. We cannot set our minds to Christ and sin at the same time. They cannot coexist. Pursuing Christ and pursuing sin is a spiritual impossibility. 
Now, it does not mean that believers are to, to live in some mystical fog and to get into those traps of saying, oh, gosh, I can't go there, I can't go there. I, I certainly can't go to Walmart because I know I'll sin there. I can't go here. I, I can't do this. I've got to stay in my own little cocoon here. That's not what it means. That would mean that Christians, we couldn't be doctors, we couldn't be lawyers, we couldn't be teachers, we couldn't be mechanics, we couldn't be chefs. We couldn't even be husbands and wives because those are earthly things. He is saying that believers are to possess heavenly values, heavenly values that are expressed in everyday life. We're supposed to do those things every single day. What are our values? What are your values as you think about that? Do they reflect your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are your values more spiritual than physical? Are they more eternal or more temporal? Are they more heavenly or are they more earthly? We must set our hearts and our minds on things above. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. In verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I was thinking, what? why hidden? Understand what that means. Why is it hidden? The perfect union be between Christ and his people is a heavenly union. The relationship you have with God is your relationship with God. The relationship that I have with God is my relationship with God. It is private. The relationships that we have with Jesus Christ is our private relationship. What can be seen, though, and this is where Paul is leading us in this letter, what can be seen is the union of the church. If we're pursuing Christ, then the union of the church is what people see. People see the big C church as a result of who we are because we are the priesthood of believers. We're the ones who gather together and worship God, and that's what people see. Many would, would really, really, well, I, I get to, I, let me ask the question. What is, what is it that people see out of the church today? What do they see? That's a scary question for me. As I look at churches, as I look at our church at times too, what are people seeing? Many would continue to see what was being seen when Paul was writing to the churches, I think. These are the words he uses throughout his letters when he's writing to the churches. Cold, slandered, faithless, tolerant of the intolerable, lifeless, apathetic, and self-consumed. We could all fall in those categories from time to time as the church. And then he wraps up this section in verse 4 when he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears when he comes back, then you also will appear with him in glory. So like he's, he's setting us up with this, oh my gosh, this is horrible, Paul. This sounds bad. But when it's all over, it's going to be okay. Kind of slings that in there. We're thankful for that. So thankful that Jesus is going to come. And all this will be put to an end. Well, then as Paul does on a regular basis, he shifts gears. And he begins to step on our toes a little bit. In verses 5 through 11, he talks about this old life. You're thinking, oh, well, you're going to point out my sins today, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. I am. Mine, yours, everybody else's. People are here at 9. They left here angry. And uh, it's okay. But it's in the Word. 
It's what Paul's telling us about right here. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So after Paul lays the groundwork for the new life and challenges the Colossians to set their hearts and their minds on things above, on heavenly things, on eternal things, he paints this picture of a contrast between the old life and the new life. He describes the old life in verses 5 through 11. In verse 5, he launches into this description with another command when he says, put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. It's a command. He's telling us exactly what to do. Put it to death. He doesn't mean to carefully regulate the sin. He He doesn't say just get as close as you can, just don't touch it. Or you can have a little bit, you know, later in the week. Because when Sunday comes, you can kind of get that, you know, come up here to the altar and kind of let some of that go. That's not what he's saying at all. There's no regulation of it. He means complete extermination. Eradicate it from your life. Because you see, these are the gross sins. They're referred to as the gross sins which Judaism held in horror. They hated these sins. Paul says that the roots of these sins lie so deep in all of us that they cannot be eradicated. Now, that didn't make me feel too good. It didn't make me feel good. But I had more understanding as I was reading more and more that even in the redeemed, even for those of us who know Christ, these seeds of evil are so present that we have got to be fully aware of them. We can't just go about our day going, oh, man, i got to try better. Oh, man, I, I need to do a little bit better with that because it just keeps coming up in my life. I need, to, I need to work harder not to do that. No, we need to be fully aware that these things are there and how to approach them. The old nature includes a lengthy list of sins here. They can be broken down into three different categories. Perverted passions, hot tempers, and sharp tongues. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these three categories, but these are for all the people who, who aren't here today because I know none of us struggle with these things. So let's just kind of be in a pact that we're talking about other people's stuff, right? We'll just keep, keep on going. I don't want it to hurt too bad. So the perverted passions are all found in verse 5. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word pornea, from which we get our English word pornography. Now, this is kind of a catch-all term that includes any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Impurity and lust refer more to sexual sins of the mind than they do about the sexual sins of the body. So these evil desires and greed, they also carry sexual overtones in this context. See, God placed sexual desire into the human psyche and he didn't intend for it to be evil at all. He placed those things in our minds for us, but he's talking about uncontrolled passion, misdirected erotic desire, and sexual excesses. Because you see, greed refers to the belief that everything, including other persons, exists for one's own amusement and pleasure. It has to do with pornography. It has to do with the things that we, that we look at outside of pornography, not just online or magazines or all that, but, but just the thought of, 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 of using someone else for our own gratification. 
and I, and I see this, and it's, it's pretty sad, even, even in my, my practice, my private practice, I see this all the time. And it's single people, it's married people, it's Christians and non-Christians. There is no difference in the statistics that are out there. And that's scary. That, that frightens me and it saddens me. But it also lets me know that what Paul is saying is so, so true. The seeds of that evil desire are in all of us. And he, he says we have to eradicate those things. But how do we do that? Richard Exley is a writer and he does a lot of couples work and, and has some conferences. But he's got a great definition in talking about lust. He says lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. It's not a biological phenomenon or a byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience, like a glass of water quenches thirst or a good meal satisfies an appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it becomes. There's simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy lust insatiable appetite. And that comes down to the that whole premise that, you know, especially in the confines of marriage, it is about intimacy. It's about the celebration of a relationship being right. That's why we're together. It's not about when, when people will say, I'm just not getting enough. Well, if you talk about it like that, you probably shouldn't, right? Because it's a celebration of what's right in the relationship. It's not about the satisfaction of one person over the other person or just getting what you want. It's to celebrate. And it's in the confines of marriage only. That's a very black and white issue according to Scripture. Because this, this drive and this desire that's there is kind of like taking a fire out of the fireplace and putting it in the middle of the den. It's not supposed to exist outside of marriage. And when it does, it never ends well. There's always this, this hurt that comes along with that. So it's a celebration within the confines of marriage. He continues with, when we deny our lustful obsessions, we're not repressing a legitimate drive. We're putting to death something that is considered normal, usual, or expected. It's the norm. It's, it's how we operate. It's how people just kind of go about life. It's everywhere around us. Sometimes when I'm not up on my prayer life, I cut through George Southern's campus for some reason. I don't know why I do that from time to time, but I need to get to the other side. And I'm thinking, well, I'll just cut through here real quick. I've never learned my lesson that it's never real quick. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I do that the other day, and I just decide to, to cut through, and I'm going up Chandler, and I get behind this Jeep. A couple of guys are in there. They got the top off of it, and they're just chilling, legs like hanging out the side of it and having a good old time just just ride through campus. Well, I, I notice off to my right, there's this girl walking down the sidewalk. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder how this is going to go. And she's a you know, normal Georgia Southern uh, girl with, you know, no clothes on. And um, I'm sorry. But, you know, the shirt's right here, and you're just wondering, is there anything, anything on underneath that shirt? And... Uh, and she's walking, and, and she, her legs are about, you know, 10 feet long. And, and I see them start to kind of look over there. And i got two daughters in college now myself. So I'm just kind of paying attention to what's going on. 
And she's just steady, you know, texting and living the dream and not paying any attention to anything around her. And we get up to, a, to the stoplight, and it's going to all kind of happen at one time. She's going to be right there by them. And I kind of look at them, and they're, they're staring. They look a lot like my, my male basset hound when he's walking behind my female basset hound, minus the ears. And um, my tongues are hanging out. They're hitting the curb, crossing into the center lane. And so I'm just watching it, and my mind starts to go and play this scenario out. As I'm thinking about my own daughters and that being my daughter, I'm going on to the next couple of verses about anger and rage. And I'm playing out this scenario, literally, and playing out this scenario. If I hear a hoot or a whistle, I'm going to snatch that guy out of his Jeep and stomp him to death right here on Chandler Road. I know I am. And I prayed about it. That didn't last long. I went right back to the scenario. And uh, I was like, God, I'm going to need some help. Please don't let anything happen here. She's not paying attention. And they're just like <laughs> looking at this girl. She walks by. They didn't do anything, thankfully. And, uh, but I, I ran up there, and I, I pulled the connection sticker off the back of it. And so they kept on going. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. They had another church's sticker. Um, but I thought about that story, and it just happened. I was studying for this, and I'm like, it's so prevalent. It's, it's in front of all of us all the time. Because, you see, lust is, the gift of, lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. You get that? Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. It feeds something that should not be there. But we deny it, not in order to become these sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to God, which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage where it's intended to be. So Paul rounds off this first list with two more reasons why Christians must rid themselves of these behaviors in 6 and 7. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So this warning of judgment heightens the seriousness of this type of conduct. Paul isn't nearly as interested in our moral improvement as he is, is a kind of, you know, warning us of God's wrath. Now, God's wrath has has been one of those controversial topics in modern times. People don't like to, to talk about God's wrath. How could a God of love be a God of wrath at the same time? It's an interesting survey that came out that 97% of people agree that God is forgiving. 96% of people agree that God is loving. 37% of people agree that God is judging. In the last category, God punishes those who do wrong. 19% of Christians believe that. Well, there's an absolute disaster ahead for not turning away from these things. From not turning away from our sins, there is absolute disaster. And those consequences that follow sin are evidenced every day. Not just at the end of time, but today. When we're dabbling in this sin, when it's got a hold of our life, the consequences are coming. We're going to be caught doing something. We're going to have to serve time for something. We're going to lose something 
when we keep going down the same path. I see it every day. I see it in my office every day. I see it in my own life. We get caught up in different things, and I hear people's stories all the time. It's, God, just, man, I, wife caught me doing this, and I, God, I just need to stop. She won't talk to me now. Or I, I just can't, I can't seem to get, wrap my head around this situation, and I just keep falling in the same place. Verses 8 through 11 talk about hot tempers and sharp tongues. In verse 8, Paul introduces a a second list of behaviors that belong to the old life. He begins with another command. He says, rid yourselves of all such things. Again, don't dabble in it. Don't try it out. Rid yourself of it. And then he mentions hot tempers, which include anger, rage, malice, and sharp tongues, which include slander, filthy language, and lying. Again, these are... These are kind of the nasty ones. We'll give you a couple of definitions. Anger is a smoldering feeling of opposition that slowly boils to the surface. Rage is a quick, sudden outburst that flares up and burns with intensity. Road rage, right? Malice is the deliberate and vicious intention to harm someone. So I think we can easily see the logic of Paul's order here. Hot tempers often lead to sharp tongues. It's the result of it. Slander is the defamation of another person's character. Filthy language doesn't just mean curse words. It refers to abusive language that people use to hurt each other. What's up with name-calling? I thought that we'd left that in elementary school for some of us. But I hear this so often, especially within the confines of marriage, that name-calling goes on. Like we're 8 instead of 28 or 38 or 58. It's still going on. There's no place for name-calling in a marriage. There's no place for name-calling, period, I think. It just lowers us to a place that we shouldn't be. There's no way that we can be fixed on on, on things above when we're doing that and have that kind of behavior. Lying is the attempt to gain the advantage over someone else by manipulating the truth. These perverted passions, hot tempers, sharp tongues are, are all part of the old life. They have no place in the new life with Christ, and God wants us to get rid of these practices. He wants us to do whatever we can to put them to death, but the the interesting part of this is he's talking about the redeemed and the not redeemed he's talking about the christian and the unchristian that we all deal with them even though we know christ if we're not pursuing christ we're going to deal with these and i I talk to y'all a lot about my my rage from time to time and i get i get that and i'm doing a little bit better won't talk about road rage i've done pretty good people people are getting it right so i'm not having to get too mad and um but a, a little while back, my son and I, he had a friend of his, and, and we, he wanted me to take them to a horror movie. I'm not big on horror movies because I just don't like to pee on myself in public, so I just avoid those unless I'm in the privacy of my own home. But he wanted to go see the movie It. Pretty low-key horror film, right? So um, we, we go in here, and uh, of course, it's at night, which I think is ridiculous because it's going to be scarier when we leave, but 
we get in there, and I do what I always do. I get in there and, and buy me a Diet Coke that's the, the size of Texas, and uh, it's a couple of gallons of good Diet Coke in this cup that, that fits rather snugly in the, uh, in the cup holder there. I'm a popcorn, which is a good place. The place is pretty crowded, so I'm thinking this is going to be a good one because I'll, I'll laugh at the people, you know, who are getting scared or they'll laugh at me one way or the other. So the previews are on. I'm just enjoying my popcorn, and I go to, to get my Diet Coke, and it's kind of stuck. So i got to pull on a little bit more. And when I do, it, it, it gives way, I guess is the best way to put it. And four gallons of Diet Coke and ice go straight up and straight in my lap. Now, words came to mind that I didn't say, so I was thinking I'm doing better with my rage. I'm not going to get angry about this. But I think it mostly had to do with the sudden chill that I was experiencing. Because it was more like, it's like that, because no words would come out. And I don't know how, when I look in the cup, there's no ice. I mean, it all came out up, though, not over. It just straight up and straight down. So I'm sitting there, George sitting next to me. He's like, are you, what's wrong? And I'm like, you're already scared. It hadn't started yet. And um. I know, drink, lap, wet. And those were the words that came out. And, and then I was thinking, you know, selfishly, I, I need some more drink. I can't sit here through this whole thing or, or suck on my britches and get the drink out. So I said, will you go get a refill? Because there's no way I can walk out like this. So he goes and gets my drink refilled and sitting there and, and, and get it and enjoy the rest of the movie. But then the movie ends. And two hours is not quite long enough to dry thoroughly. So everything finishes, and I'm thinking, um, I say to him, I said, Jordan, you, you and uh, your friend, could y'all walk like ahead of me and behind me on the way out, awkwardly close together if you could, because I don't want to walk out of here with khakis on and... Uh, and for people to go, oh, got you, didn't it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> because if you get so scared that you're wet in the front and the back, that's scared. Really scared. It was awful. It was an awful feeling. There's no way, there's no way to go. But I was proud that I didn't, you know, I didn't break the chair because I got so angry. I mean, it was probably already broken because it was our theater. But it was, it wasn't, you know, I didn't do anything crazy. It was just kind of, it was just ended up being funny. So I think, I, I think that part's getting better. And we have to pursue those things or pursue Christ in order for those things to go away. The old way of life is to be decisively challenged and the old way of life is to be decisively changed. We have to challenge the old life and change the old life. Well, he wraps this up with the new life in verses 12 through 17. After Paul challenges the Colossians to rid themselves of the practice of the old life, in verses 12 through 17, he commands them to actively pursue a virtuous life that is worthy of Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. After you take off the sin-stained garments of the old life, put on the clean and virtuous clothes of the new life. So we're... You know, with the, the hurricane coming, we, we decided that we we're going to try to get rid of some clothes and help some people out. And 
Lisa said, well, you, you know, let's, let's go through our clothes. And, and I went in the closet. I'm the type that when I wear something, I, I put it on the right side and, and kind of pick things back here just as a, as a good conscientious dresser. I don't want to wear the same thing twice. So both of my shirts I put on the end, and then I grab the other one and just rotate those too. But so I start looking at the, the pants lined up, and I go to the end of where I'm, those pants I usually wear are there. I picked that pair, and I, I said, well, I'm going to try these on. I pull them on. I was like, oh, these must be Jordans. They must have gotten in my closet on accident and because um, they're not quite fitting the way they did because I put on a lot of muscle in the last couple of years. And um, so they didn't quite fit. So I, I just assumed everything to the left of those um, probably wasn't going to be right either because there's a couple from high school in there. I'm not sure why they were still in there, but they, were, they looked more like I got those out of the toddler section. Um, so it was off with the old and on with the new. And he talks about that as far as clothing. Paul says that the, the practices of the old life don't fit us anymore. If they don't fit us anymore, it's time to be clothed with the character of Christ. So what exactly is Jesus' wardrobe? What does it look like? And he lists that in verse 12 through 17. It includes compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Forgiveness, love, unity, peace, thankfulness, and gratitude. See, these are the traits that should fill Christian minds and guide Christian hearts. But there's still those nuances, those places that, that crop up, and we even justify those things. If you'll look back at verse 11, he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see, here, according to Paul, there can be no deep divisions. He's talking about us as a church, and there can be no deep divisions in the church. The divisions among people were no different than they are today. They're the same. There was a clear class system. There was the uncouth, and there was the sophisticated. There was racism, and there was differing political views. But you know, if we're pursuing Christ... If we're loving who God is and we're pursuing him 100 miles an hour, there does not have to be race relations. We don't have to learn how to live among different races if we are focused with our hearts and our minds on things above. There's racism, class system, all those things are earthly things. There's no place for those. We set our hearts and our minds on things above we become different than who we were, and we're more alike in Christ than we are different in the world. Paul concludes this section with this kind of overarching summary command of the new Christian life. And he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, the things we say or the things we do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's everything. He didn't leave anything out. We're being called to live a life so adorned with the character of Christ, modeled on the example of Christ, subject to his love, ruled by his peace, and entrenched in his word. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is the name that unites. And we can indeed be one body of believers, but only in Christ. 
We cannot be united in race relations. We cannot be united in our political views. We cannot be united in anything of its earth. We can only be united through Christ and in Christ. Because you see, all who Christ has accepted, we must accept. And last time I checked his word, he accepts all who call on him. All who are not satisfied with Christ alone will not be satisfied with us who are true believers. The life transformation process is to include any and all activities of life. Everything that we say, everything that we do, in all places and always, the believer is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand. So today is the day to take off the old and put on the new. It's a time to put the old life to death and clothe ourselves in the character of Christ. If there's sexual immorality in your life, get rid of it. If there's a hot temper, take a chill pill. If there's a sharp tongue, tie it in a knot. Put on the character of Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it for Christ. Because on with the new and the old cannot coexist. So again, it's not about what we're not supposed to do. It's about who we are to pursue. He calls us to pursue Jesus Christ. And when we do that, these things go away. We rid ourselves of those things because they cannot happen at the same time. So when you're being drawn to those lustful thoughts, when you're being drawn to that computer screen, pray, do something else, run, go somewhere. When you're feeling that anger rise up in your marriage, in your family, towards your kids, towards your parents, whatever it may be, pray through it, do something else. Don't back up one step, back up 20 steps. Pursue Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day that you know that God has, has been calling on you and that Jesus stands right there at the door of your heart saying, please let me come in. Please let me come in and be Lord of your life. Making that decision to know him and begin a relationship with him is so important. And we celebrate that here. We love to see people go from death to life. And maybe that's the decision you need to make today. So you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're, you're like, I, I've got to start somewhere. I don't know this Jesus personally. And if that's a decision you need to make right where you are, just lift your hand up so we can celebrate with you and pray with you. Anybody at all need to make that decision today. All right, so as we all sit here as the redeemed what is it that you need to leave here today those seeds of evil that Paul is very clear are in all of us not just the person next to you not three doors down but we're all in that boat maybe the day today is the day that you leave that here maybe it's just it's, it's just eating up your marriage 
Maybe it's eating up your dating life because you know it's not where you're supposed to be in your dating life. Wherever you may be as an employee, an employer, these things have crept up and you're dealing with them. So just for a couple of minutes, I want you to stand to your feet. And, and just, for, just for a moment, I want you to pray right where you are. Or if you feel led that God leads you down here as a, as a couple or an individual and you want to pray here at the altar, really cool thing happens Monday through Friday. We cleanse the altar. So whatever you leave down here won't be here again. Whatever you take with you, that's your responsibility. But you can leave that here. God promises to forgive us as far as the east is from the west. And maybe you do that as, a, as an individual or a, a couple or friend or whoever wants to come. So just for a couple of minutes, as God leads you, let's have this time of prayer.